This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week talking about booster shots with our Zoomer squad. So far in Ontario, third shots of COVID vaccine are being offered to older people living in congregate settings like nursing and retirement homes. But some snowbirds heading to their homes in the southern U.S., are planning to get their boosters once they get there, since third COVID shots are now being offered to American residents 65 and older. Peter Mugridge is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. They weighed in with their thoughts on COVID booster shots. It's intuitively uh, logical, and I think the evidence is there that that booster shot uh, is valuable. The problem is that there are so many other variables that it's very hard for a layman to say, you know, statistically, we absolutely must get this. How far apart were the shots I had? What were the vaccines I took? What is the combination? Now we're going to drop the flu vaccine, uh, it's flu season, into the mix what is that going to do? I don't think there's, a, you know, one medical story that everybody can uh, hang on to. So I think we have to just keep our eyes open and, and watch and see uh, and then jump at the first opportunity that the government makes this available to everyone. Bill, what's your take on this? Well, uh, you're right. David's, uh, David's right. It's a real conundrum for uh, older Canadians who are concerned about uh, trying to to uh, wade through all the information that they're they're getting, and they understand that uh, um, you know most older people who are getting infected now uh, are getting infected because they thought they were safe with the two vaccines they've already had. But uh, we're told that when you're over 65, even though you've got uh, two shots, some doctors are even saying you should pretend you're not uh, vaccinated. Uh, if you can't get a third shot, uh, you have to act like you haven't been vaccinated because you may not be protected. And that's really confusing information from our, well, a lot it, of our people who aren't able to, uh, to wade through the information that you've been able to, uh, Libby, in the last couple of weeks. Okay, well, just to clarify, uh, that's one doctor in Newfoundland, right? Uh, one one doctor in, in Newfoundland that I'm uh, that I'm quoting there, but there uh, this there are other uh, uh, information that we've had that says that, that it's still you know the the situation of uh, not uh, not everyone having had the same two vaccines, uh, not having them the same distance apart, not being sure whether or not they can can or should. Uh, get a booster and and uh, you know people can't take for granted that just because they have two vaccines uh, they're fully they're fully protected 
Well, the, the numbers, Peter, show that you are protected against severe disease. We know that older people's immune systems aren't as good. And of course, we've just seen this issue with Colin Powell. He was 84, by the way. But, but the numbers do show you're 96%, uh, you know, protected from severe disease and hospitalization. Uh, what do you make of this? I mean that that was the goal of the um, the the initial vaccine rollout. It, it wasn't to reduce uh, cases to zero, as as David always points out. It, it was um, to reduce hospitalizations and death. And and you know um, from from the studies I've read, the the existing vaccines seem to be doing that job. Is is that um, people may be getting it, but they're getting much less severe cases of it they're staying out of hospital and uh not everyone obviously but but it it's it's generally the two shots are generally doing a good job in protecting people from the worst uh the worst situation possible so um but but then there are cases of people who who are have you know immune issues and people living in uh congregate settings like uh long term long people living in long term care so so it seems to me that the governments are going to focus on long term care with the booster shot and that um whether it it rolls out to the general population I'm a little bit doubtful on that whether we even need it Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, CARP's chief marketing officer and vice president here at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. For years, it was seen as an inexpensive and effective intervention to prevent heart disease. But recently, a U.S. panel of experts has backed away from the use of low-dose aspirin, telling doctors to stop prescribing it routinely for people at high risk who've not had heart attacks or strokes. There is mounting evidence that the risk of serious side effects like life-threatening bleeding far outweighs the benefits for these individuals. Doctors have long recommended daily low-dose aspirin for many patients who've already had a heart attack or a stroke. The U.S. Task Force guidance does not change that advice. Joining Fight Back on Monday, and to clear up any confusion, Dr. Michael Farcou, cardiologist at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto, and Dr. Chi Ming Chow, cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. This is, uh, I think, a long-term coming. And from the medical community, we uh, recognize that, you know, aspirin is uh, while it could be a panacea, but uh, for many years, but it also has harm as well, uh, because we know that aspirin can have a, uh, increased risk uh, up to about one percent of bleeding, uh, especially among older people. So uh, even with the uh, most recent uh, Diabetes uh, Canada guideline, uh, uh, even among patients with diabetes, uh, unless you have a heart attack, stroke, or uh, peripheral vascular disease, uh, aspirin is not indicated. So I think you know this is um, something that uh, the uh, public should know uh, because many uh, people actually started aspirin on their own because they think taking one aspirin a day is good because this is what they have been told for many years. And now we have to make sure that uh, people recognize it. Uh, it's not something that you should take on your own and uh, people should consult their physicians to see if it's appropriate for them. 
are there still patients with certain profiles that you are keeping on this regimen? I think this particular recommendation focuses on people, uh, what we call uh, primary prevention. And among people who have had uh, a diagnosis of heart attack or uh, blockages in their coronary arteries or people who have a history of stroke or a small stroke like TIA or blockage in their, uh, 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 the brain vessels uh, or uh, blockage in the leg vessels or peripheral, artery, uh, peripheral arteries, then uh, aspirin is indicated. But uh, among people who have never had uh, any of the above, uh, heart, prob- uh, heart attacks or, uh, or angina or strokes, uh, then aspirin uh, has to be uh, uh, considered uh, individually. Um, I think, you know, one of the major recommendations uh, in this guideline uh, or draft is that people above 60 uh, should not be routinely taking aspirin. Among people are 40 to 59, then uh, among people that are higher risk of having uh, heart disease uh, should be considered and individualized. Dr. Farku, what would you like to leave us with? This is an important milestone because it means that we look at the risk benefit of any intervention. But you must, we must be very careful here. This, anyone who's had, an, had a heart attack, a stroke, has coronary artery disease, disease of the, of the uh, cerebral vessels that go to the brain, those folks need to be on aspirin. This is not pertaining to those individuals. And we've had a lot of questions about this. Aspirin should be given to everyone who, ha- who can take it who has cardiovascular disease. That's number one. So this applies to people who have never had any cardiovascular event, and only to people over the age of 60. So if you're between the ages of 40 and 59, you need to consult with your doctor because maybe the risk-benefit equation is in favor of taking aspirin and and the bleeding risk is lower. So we must, those are the two important caveats. You must not have had an event before to be eligible for this guideline, and you must be over the age of 60. And then the bleeding risk, as Dr. Uh, as Dr. Chow points out, is, is the issue. So there, that, those are the issues really out on the table today. I think that whenever we take therapies over the counter on our own, we need to be careful and consult with our doctors. We saw this happen with ibuprofen and with naproxen and other agents that are used for painkillers. People take these drugs. We don't ask about it. So make sure you talk to your doctor that you're on an aspirin. You've taken it because you've or you may have been on an aspirin, and now this guideline has changed your mind or has informed you in another direction, and uh, you need to be under the guidance of a physician here. But I think it is a message of risk-benefit. Even though we have a small benefit when we take aspirin, the risk outweighs the benefit many of the time, and bleeding is a major complication that we need to be aware of, and we don't want people to present the major bleed as their first presentation. Dr. Michael Farku, cardiologist at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto, and Dr. Chi Ming Chow, cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. It's important to stress that regardless of age, adults should talk with their doctors about stopping or starting aspirin to make sure it's the right choice for them. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, yet another apology from Justin Trudeau, while Doug Ford refuses to say sorry. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Tuesday, Libby talked with our strategy panelists about public apologies. The day before, we heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's latest mea culpa, his second public apology over his failure to accept an invitation from a First Nations group in Kamloops, British Columbia, on Canada's first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. On the provincial scene, Doug Ford has refused to apologize on multiple occasions for unsavory comments he made on Monday about immigrants. The premier said they are welcome if they work their tails off, but he cautioned that if they're coming to collect the dole and sit around, that's not happening. John Capobianco is a conservative strategist and senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. And Charles Bird is a liberal strategist and managing principal at Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Libby asked them if they think Doug Ford should say sorry. I'm left to wonder, you know, if this was just a, a Doug Ford moment. Or whether he, you know, as we enter the pre-election phase, because I mean, six months from now, we're going to be into a rip period for the Ontario election. And I'm wondering if he's posturing a little bit in terms of uh, a tougher persona, which I know a lot of folks like and appreciate, even if it is racially and culturally insensitive from time to time. And whether we'll, we're likely to see more of this or whether it's going to be more the, the kindler, gentler Doug Ford that emerged during the pandemic. Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, I know Aaron O'Toole faced a lot of criticism for running too much like a liberal, um, and it may end up costing him the federal leadership. But um, so whether whether the premier is adopting a different tact, I guess time will tell if we see sort of repetitions of this kind of uh, excessive rhetoric. Karen, uh, what do you think? I mean, there are people who are wondering, you know, was it a dog whistle of some kind or just, uh, you know, uh, an unnecessary, as Charles said, dumb thing to say? Yeah, I kind of fall in the camp that this was Ford off script. And uh, I don't I don't think anybody thinks that Doug Ford is anti-immigration or anti-immigrant or um, I, I, it's just that's not, I mean, he, he says silly things, and I don't know why he said what he said, but I, I think it was just in a moment of being unscripted, as opposed to anything deeper or setting a tone for the election up ahead. I, I think it was really just a misstep. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, he could apologize for just being, like, for saying something stupid, but I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he, I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to suggest that he's um, making slights against immigrants. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch from what he said. John, should he apologize for uh, misspeaking? I think that's uh, one of the terms for it. <laughs> well, in the famous words, as my panelists would would, would understand it and appreciate what the what the premier meant to say was, uh, <laughs> 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 um, <clears throat> I think that you know, and, and and Karen is absolutely right. There's there's no one that would ever believe that that he or Rob, uh, the former former you know late Rob, would ever be anti immigrant. In fact, they're they're and, and the premier said this in, in the in question period today. Like, and it's true for those of us that have been to Ford Fest and have seen Ford Nation grow. Uh the vast majority of those who supported 
uh, the premier, uh, quite frankly, when he was a councillor and now when he's premier, were, were those that, that came from other countries, were immigrants. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, my parents, when they were alive, were big supporters of them because, you know, they knew that, that if there was any, anybody that would ever call back uh, or, you know, knock on their door on something, it would have been one of the forts. It would have been Doug Ford. So I think that what he, he was obviously trying to say that the province is in desperate need of skilled and unskilled workers. There's a lot of labor shortages that are happening. And, and Ontario has been, has been a, a huge province. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter which government has been in place, but they've always been a huge re- recipient of, of immigrants and skilled workers. And, and that needs to continue, especially now with the pandemic. Uh, and some of the issues that have happened, uh, and the Ontario Immigrant Nominee Program is 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 effective, but it's but it's oversubscribed. So I think a lot of that, I think he was trying to uh, emulate the fact that hey, look, we want people to come, we want them to come and work hard. Uh, I think it was it was just you know not said well, um, and uh, I don't think he needs to apologize. I think people understand that that what he what he tried to say, and and he made it clear that he is very much pro immigrant uh, immigration. Uh, and will do his best, and as always has done his best, to make sure that those who do come to Canada and Ontario will try to get a fair share and 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 their uh, opportunity to uh, to live a prosperous life, like my parents and others have in the past. John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, liberal strategist and managing principal at Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Early on in the pandemic, we reported an increase in the number of people getting pets to help them through the isolation of lockdown. The increased demand led to shortages and price hikes and also worries that many of those animals may be abandoned as life gets back to normal. Now there is another problem, long waits to see a veterinarian when those pets need attention. On Tuesday, Libby was joined by Dr. Enid Stiles, immediate past president of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. Albert Wimmers, also a former president of the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association, and Leanne Wright, Senior Vice President of Communications here at Zoomer Media, who brought this issue to our attention after she waited outside for six hours to get into a vet emergency clinic with her cat. My kitty, Lulu, she's a a senior or a Zoomer kitty, 12 (laughs) years old. (laughs) She's sitting right next to me right now, actually. Um, I noticed that she was experiencing some oral discomfort whenever she ate. She would whack her cheek, and it was uh, getting increasingly obvious. I started calling uh, around to various uh, veterinarian clinics. Most of them were booking two, three weeks out. Uh, but it was increasingly obvious that she was in more and more pain, so I took her to the uh, local uh, hospital, which is a couple of blocks away from, from where I live. I actually called them first and told them to describe the situation, and they called me back pretty quickly and said that her case was approved and I could bring her over. But I was able to administer antibiotics throughout the course of the week, which is what they gave me at the emergency clinic, until I could take her to my sister's veterinarian um, yesterday. So So it's like six, once you get to emerge, uh, 
six hours. Uh, that's almost like what you have to uh, wait, wait in a for, hospital. For a hospital, yeah, yeah. There was there were a couple puppies waiting. One had uh, one needed uh, some attention after an allergic reaction. There was a, an elder an elder dog. There were. Um, people who came in to resuscitate kittens, but we all had to wait outside, of course, during, due to COVID protocols. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a long wait. <laughs> it was a long wait. Let's bring in our veterinarians. Uh, is that a familiar story, Dr. Albert Wimmers? Yes, unfortunately it is. And we're hearing stories uh, sometimes, you know, 12 and, and 16 hours, depending on how heavy the caseload is at after-hours clinics. Um, it's a real challenge in that not only have the number of, of pets increased and pet ownership increased, but in the veterinary industry, we're also dealing with uh, staffing shortages and burnout. And so you've got both issues going on, and it's a real challenge. And I'm so thankful that uh, they were able to get your uh, your kitty in there <laughs> and you. take care. Uh, and from my experience, the emergency clinics are really working super, super hard. They're prioritizing cases and, and triaging and doing the very best they can with the resources they've got right now. But what about you, Dr. Stiles? So, yeah, you know what? I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm in Montreal, so it's not that different here. We're seeing huge wait times for our um, emergency and out of our um services, it really is a trickle-down effect. So like Dr. Wimmer's mentioned, you know, because we are seeing staff shortages, and that's a multitude of reasons. Burnout has been an increasing problem in our profession. Uh, give that COVID and inefficiencies in practice and the stress of changing the way we work and doing curbside medicine, uh, people being off sick because or being off because they have to look after family members or because their children are being schooled at home, just so many factors leading to our staff shortage. So the regular practices are just unable to meet the need of even the general cases that we used to see, right? So, you know, it's a good example um, that you have, Leanne, that, you know, your cat normally would have been seen by a general practice and would not have needed to be seen by an emergency um, and an out-of-hours practice. So, we're seeing that they're unable to meet the needs because we're fully booked and, and booking two out, you know, two weeks in advance. And the triaging of these cases has become very difficult. So they are ending up in ERs, which are also having the same problems everybody else is. It's good news that they got to see your cat. That's great because some of the hours are actually longer than what you've described. So it's, it's good news. They, and they managed to take your cat in, which I think is really a priority. They, they, they took in charge right away and, and gave the care your cat needed it to have immediately, even if you didn't quite get finished for six hours with a, with a result. Um, at least there was care, and that's, that's our priority for sure. Dr. Enid Stiles, immediate past president of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Albert Wimmers, also a former president of the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association. And Leanne Wright. Senior VP of Communications here at Zoomer Media, and her cat, Lulu. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Steve in Brampton phoned with his personal advice on pet ownership. When we were children, I'm 70, and so in the 50s, you'd come home and your parents would tell you, oh, Spot ran away. And, and I think that's the time when Spot got into some serious costs and your parents just dealt with it. But anybody getting a puppy now, my dog is 13, uh, I tell them, number one, I recommend you get him in training, and number two, get pet insurance, because I think monthly expenses can pile up. But I'll tell you, for the first 10 years, I paid premiums and did nothing, but he's had some hefty, and I mean hefty, medical expenses in the last three years, and they're ongoing because he has conditions. I don't get 100% back, but I get a big chunk of it back. I'm very appreciative of the benefit of pet insurance, which, frankly, I thought was a joke before I got involved with it. And uh, it's it's really helped me, and it, it makes the decisions about what I'm prepared to do for him a lot easier. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Anne in Etobicoke, who phoned with her observations as a pedestrian on what she sees as an increase in aggressive drivers. I live in the Kingsway, and what I find is pedestrians crossing on a controlled intersection. The drivers are intimidating, in my opinion. That's how I feel when I'm crossing the road, the pedestrians, because they don't let the pedestrians get too far out of the way before they complete their turn. Hmm, yeah. Whether it's the right turn or left turn. Sometimes um, you're still in the lane or just stepped outside the lane when the driver makes the turn and completes the turn. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown. Justin Eacock and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.